And uh, I'm Dave Mitchell. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Church, and uh, I will be your preacher for this morning. And so I'm here for your listening pleasure. And so I encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 as we are going through the book of Romans. It's a heavy-duty uh, book. It's a filet mignon, if you will, of spiritual food. It is uh, dense. It is filled with all kinds of things that we don't talk about, but we're hopefully hitting those things that we believe that God would have us to deal with. So Romans chapter 6, you have an outline in today's bulletin. You'll find those to be helpful tools. There are digging deepers and the backside of it as well. I'd like to begin, before I read from the text, a letter that I received from uh, someone just this last week. If you were with us last week, you know that we were in Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, the latter portion of about verses 12 to the end of the chapter, uh, I put on the outline and tried to describe how there are two columns there. There's the column of being in Adam, sin and, and consequences of sin and destruction of sin. And then the other column was to be in Christ and the righteousness and the holiness that comes because we're in Christ. So we are either, uh, everybody's in one of those two categories. We're either in Adam... That is, we're still in sin and bearing the consequences of sin, which is spiritual separation from God, or we're in Christ and bearing the consequences of that, which is a good thing. Uh, that is righteousness and eternal life with God forever in heaven and with Him even on earth, as for that matter. And so I received a letter on that next Monday, the, the day after, and I, you know, I'm always glad to know that there are, number one, people listening. <laughs> so, that's, that's always a good thing. Uh, but secondly, that, uh, that there are those that are thinking about these things in such serious ways. Uh, it'd be easy to come to church and just sort of gloss over it and, oh yeah, I kind of heard that before, and then leave and, and uh, just carry on. And, and people will do that. But here is a very serious uh, member here at Calvary Church who had a very thoughtful letter and asked about the struggle of being in Adam or in Christ. And this is what she wrote to me, and I have her permission to read this. I won't give you her name, but... Uh, she wrote this uh, to me, and she said in part, <clears throat> part of the letter goes this way, I'm very thankful. I'm a very thankful believer in Jesus Christ. I love Him because He loved me first. But at times I struggle with feeling more like Adam than in Christ, especially when I've blown it with my kids and my husband. I wish my head knowledge would match up with my heart and feelings. I struggle with feeling and acting more like Adam than Christ when we are in Christ and not in Adam. Hopefully, you can shine some light on this for me. And I hope that I can as well. But I would be curious if we just took a poll now. How many of us would relate to this lady? That so much of my life, I feel like I'm more in Adam than in Christ when I know that I'm in Christ and not in Adam. Why the struggle so much where the power of Adam and his sin seems to have such influence and I want to get beyond that but in my, in my heart and my mind I, I can't. I can't move beyond it. And so this morning as I told her as I responded back to her that we're going to be talking about that this coming Sunday because when Paul wrote the book of Romans he didn't stop at chapter 5 and I'll get back to you next week with chapter 6. When he wrote the book of Romans, he wrote it as one big scroll, and I just read the whole thing all in some total. They didn't bother to say that it's, uh, well, it's time for church to stop, and so we'll pick up the reading next Sunday when you come back. Now, 
when he wrote this, it was all because Romans 5 leads to Romans 6. So Romans 5 is the contrast of Adam and sin, and Romans 6 is in Christ. What does Jesus do? And so my goal today is to answer her letter. And for every thoughtful person here who says, you know what, I relate to her. I struggle with so much of my life. I live more like Adam would than with Christ. So how can I become more in the Christ category and less in the Adam category? So Romans chapter 6 reads in part this way. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that a body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And that's just this thing. This is such a hard, this is such a hard thing for me to get my mind around. That we who have died with Christ are now freed from sin. If I'm freed from sin, why do I keep sinning, Right? If I have been crucified, my old self has been crucified, what does that mean? What is the old self and what does it mean that it's crucified? These are the things that we want to wrestle with here this morning because it's a whole big deal of moving from the Adam column to the in Christ column and actually being in Christ in my daily lifestyle, freed up from sin. Old things are passed away. Let's talk about that. And the outline that I showed to you on the, uh, that you have in your hand, I'll throw it on the screen here so we can follow along together and, and really hopefully get some progress in this Christian life. And believe me, there's a lot of things that churches preach today. There's a lot of messages that pastors are preaching and blogging today. I suspect that there is nothing more important than getting this sort of nailed down that of all the things that a church could be dealing with and all the practical tips and helpful techniques of parenting and marriage and employers and employees and, and managing some of the emotional struggles of our lives, that they're all legitimate things that need to be addressed. But if we're not getting Romans 6 figured out, then all those other things are just superficial. Because Romans 6 is really the crux of the matter, almost literally as well as figuratively. So let's begin this journey together, learning to live that righteous life. And, and let me just say this as well. Before I speak, I'd like to say something. <laughs> that uh, when Jesus came into this world to die on that cross for our sins, to me by what we call our substitute, my substitution on that cross so that I don't need to die for my own sins. So my penalty of my sins have been paid for by Jesus, not by me. I'm not going to have to pay for my own sins. I still sin, but Jesus keeps paying for them. It's sort of an unlimited credit account that I have with God through Jesus Christ, as we do all who believe in Jesus. When Jesus came to die for us, He didn't come to die for us so that we could have a better home, a nicer car, the job of my choice, the school of my choice, multiple degrees, 
lots of money, good health, problem-free life, children that always obey, children when the day they were born they believe in Jesus Christ and just become more sanctified when they're two years old and never have temper tantrums. Jesus didn't die that all those things I just said would happen to us. They may, but let me just reiterate. When Jesus came to this world and he gave us the Bible so that we could study the Bible, there is one reason he did that, so that you and I would become as holy as his Father God in heaven is. That's it. That's all he's ever promised to us through the cross. The cross says nothing but that. Now, when you live a righteous life, God is sovereign. He will rule and He will... But believe me, some of the most sanctified, holy, righteous followers of Jesus have lived some of the most harsh and brutal and persecuted lives that we've ever seen in the history of the world, mankind. So I just want to be very clear. When we say learning to live the righteous life, that doesn't attract a lot in the community. It says, well, I'm intrigued by that but it should be a hunger and a desire for us that we would hunger for the righteousness of God. And this Romans 6 helps us move into the heart of God. That which pleases Him the most is this righteous life. So how do I learn to live the righteous life? How do I move from the Adam column to Christ column if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing is this. Recognize the challenge in Romans 6, 1 and 2. There is an enticing and deceiving nature of sin and our frustration is really hard to move beyond it. Sin is very deceiving and enticing. I see that. Notice in verses 1 and 2 it says this, But shall we, what shall we say then? In light of the, the no longer in Adam, now in Christ, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, the more I sin, the more God forgives, the more God forgives, the more grace I get. So I should sin more so I can forgive more, so I can have grace more, so that God's grace can becomes more abundant. Well, Paul says that's ludicrous. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You don't sin that grace may abound. I remember hearing about a man who uh, went to a Christian counselor and he said, you know, I'm thinking about leaving my wife because I found another woman. And this man is a follower of Jesus Christ, claims to be a born-again believer. He says, I'm thinking about leaving my, my wife because I found another woman. I know it's the wrong thing to do, but I still want to do it. So I'm planning to divorce my wife so I can marry this new woman. And then after we get married, I'm planning to go back to God at that time and says, God, would you forgive me? Because I know you're a gracious God. So he asks his counselor, do you think that would be okay? Well, this is the distorted thinking of a mind. Well, of course God is forgiving, He is gracious, but do we sin that grace may abound? It's, it's that deception. See, it's that kind of deception that was in this man's mind. That he thinks, I can go ahead and get away with anything I want to do. It doesn't matter whether to live a righteous life. Because I know that God is a forgiving God. He's a gracious God who will always forgive. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So I, I'm going to take God at His word. I'll divorce my wife, marry the other woman, and then ask for His forgiveness. You can't outthink God on things like that. I would fear God if I was that man asking a question like that. And should He pursue it? And I think that He did. So there is the deception, the challenge of the deception and the enticement of sin. And let me just quote myself. <laughs> Quoting myself to say, you never find in sin what you enter sin to find. 
That's quotable, right? You never find in sin what you enter sin to find. I want to enter sin to find things that I think would be good for me, make me feel better, get me my will, my desire, my uh, all the things that I'm fascinated with. But you never find in sin what you enter sin to find. You find the opposite. That's the enticement of sin. So what's God's solution? So let's jump into it. The solution are two things on the outline that I have for you. The solution, and let me just, just point this out, because I'm fearful that sometimes you get lost in the weeds of thoughts and we don't get the bigger things that I think that the Scripture is teaching us. On the outline, you notice that God's solution are two things that I'm drawing from this passage. The more I read over this passage, the more I sort of meditated on it and thought about it and prayed about it, considered it. What does it take for me to live in Christ more than living in Adam? What is it that this passage is summary telling me to do? And there are two things that I noticed that really rise to the top in my own interpretation of this passage. That number one, God's solution is that I need to know my identity in Christ, and there are things that what that means underneath it. And then secondly, I need to present myself to Christ in obedience and service. Once I know Christ, then I present myself in obedience to Christ. Then I begin to live the Christian life as God designed it to be. So what does it mean to know Christ? I need to know my new identity in Jesus Christ. This next passage in verses 3 and 4 is often used in reference to baptism. It can have sort of a symbolic value to baptism, but I'm going to drill home on the fact that it's a spiritual event, not a water event. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The baptism into Christ Jesus, where I baptized into His death, buried with Him, baptized into His death, so that Christ we are raised from the dead, we are baptized into Jesus, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. What does it mean to be baptized in Jesus? So that's why I have this nice little thing here. This is uh, water with uh, some kind of a dark blue-black dye. The goal is to not get it on my pants. But I have in my hand a white cloth taken from a little girl's t-shirt. Thank you. And when I take this white cloth and I dip it into this dyed water and pull it out, obviously it changes color. There's nothing real phenomenal about that, but it's just enough to pique your interest and and, uh, look at that. So that's changed its identity. When I go in here like this, I'm baptizing it. When I pull it out like this, it's changed its identity. Here's a little lesson, and if you don't know this already, that that word baptize is a term that was used in the days of the Apostle Paul, Jesus. And the word baptized literally means to die something, to D-Y-E, die something. And it's also used in sort of a turn of the phrase, to die, D-I-E, with Christ. When I am baptized into Jesus spiritually, I'm not talking about water baptism, spiritually. When I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and I accept His payment for my sins. I no longer choose to pay for them. I no longer work my way into heaven. I choose to believe that Jesus is the payment for my sins. And so he then says, okay, once you believe in me, you put your faith and trust in me, you are then baptized into me, Jesus. 
And when he says here in Romans 6, 3, and 4, you have been baptized into his death, his burial, his resurrection, he is saying, not that you have been water baptized into me, but that you have been identified into me. You have become part of me. I become part of you. I become in you. You have D-Y-E. You have died into me. I have changed your identity as this cloth that once was white that is now dark blue has changed its identity. It's no longer identified as a white cloth, but now as a cloth with blue dye in it. So when I put my faith in Jesus, I am dyed into Jesus so that my identity, the word baptized, to change one's identity. Every time you talk about being baptized in Jesus, think in your mind, I am being identified with Christ. He has given to me a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Why? Because now when the Father in heaven looks at Dave Mitchell, let's just take me for example. And after that day that I put my faith and trust in Jesus, when God looks at me, he no longer sees Dave Mitchell. He sees the clothing of the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And I have been baptized into Christ and his identification, my identification with Christ and his death, his burial, and his brand new life. So I walk in a newness of life. So we, says the very last phrase, so we too might walk in a newness of life. So that we too might demonstrate that yes, my identity has changed. And so you're going to begin to see somebody new, a new way of living. My goal to live the righteous life is to recognize that I have been given a new identity. And it's not always easily picked out. Sometimes it's uh, very unclear. But the goal is to learn how that new identity becomes ever-present more and more every day so that other people begin to see, I'm a new person. I have been changed. And those believers that have not changed in the last decade, you wonder, are they really a new identity in Jesus Christ? Because it happens. You change. So how do you know Christ better? How does that identity in Christ become more vivid to people around us? First of all, as Paul says, and then in verses 3 and 4, I am instructed to walk or live in a new way of life. Notice the emphasis on the word know. There are about three different Greek words that he uses here. But the word know is a prominent word. Or it says in verse 3 and 4, he says, I want you to no longer be deceived by sin. I want you to live the righteous life. And he says to do that, do you not know? Is it not an awareness in your brain that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we too might walk in a newness of life? The more I know, the more I know of who Jesus is and what he has said, the more I know that, the more the newness of the life becomes vivid for others to see. It's also said in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul wrote this as well. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Talking about all the sinful things. If indeed you have heard and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, 
and that you being renewed in the spirit of your mind, the more I know, the more truth I gain, the more I learn, the more my mind is renewed, I put on the new self. I understand that I want to talk more about being a dark blue than an old white. I begin to change my identity so the spirit of my mind, I put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness in the truth. The key for people who want to be more in Christ and less in Adam is to learn more about Christ and learn less about in Adam. And the more I know about Jesus, the more I begin to process all of my daily existence through the eyes of Christ, the more I say to myself in this old-time cliche that we used to wear and little rubber wristbands, what would Jesus do? as cliched and as seemingly old-fashioned as that phrase is, it boils down to the summary that the more I know about Jesus, the more I'm going to think about Jesus. The more I know about Jesus, the more I'm going to act like Jesus. And the challenge for a lot of us is that we, our minds, are not being renewed in the truth to learn Jesus. Learn Jesus' talk, learn Jesus' attitude, learn Jesus' way. That's the key. The second thing that I know, I want to know about Jesus, I want to learn more about my new relationship with Jesus, which caused me to be more like Him. So against this learning this, in verse 6, he says, knowing this, the word know there, the word knowing there, or K-N-O-W, our English word is the Greek word that won't mean much to you, but it is gnosko, and the word for knowing, there's O-I-D-A, know, which is more of an intellectual understanding. He used that later. But he uses this word, gnosko, which means, gnosko is a Greek word that means the, know someone by spending time in a relationship with them. You know, when you, if you're married, when you married your wife or your husband, you had oida. I sort of get them to a certain extent. I have a lot of intellectual knowledge about them. I see them. I perceive them. I have an intuitive understanding about them, but you move from oida, O-I-D-A, intellectual understanding, to gnosko when you marry. Suddenly the oida transforms into gnosko that now I'm living with this person. Now I relate to them. And on weekends we're together 24 hours a day and when we get retired we're going to be with her 24 hours seven days a week. And that's a whole lot of relating going on. And for some people, that's not, that's not something you look forward to, right? But it's relational knowledge. So Paul says, I want you to oida, I want you to intellectually know Jesus, but I also want you to relationally know Jesus. I want, and that comes out of time. It comes out of an investment of time. Knowing this that our old self was crucified in him, the more I know and relate to Jesus, the realize. I used to be a certain way, my attitude, my temperament, my words, my language, my ethics, my stewardship. It used to be sort of self-oriented and, and really diminished in its perspective. But then, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but he who has died is freed from sin. The more I relate to Jesus, the more I become like Jesus. Let, let me illustrate it. I read an interesting study this last week. In this study, they did a study of uh, why is it, or, or is it true that 
people who are married over 25 years begin to look like each other. And so they did a study about that, and they found out, in fact, they did a little study. They had uh, a whole bunch of couples in their pictures, and they put them before this panel of individuals and said, try to match up those who are married to each other. And so they started looking at it, and they're all been, you know, some have been married for 25 years or more, and some have been married for less than 25 years. It was an amazing phenomenon. They could identify those who were married to each other if they'd been married over 25 years, but those under 25, they couldn't match who was husband and wife. Why? Because those married more than 25 years look like each other more than those who are married less than 25 years. I just hope I'm looking more like Joy than Joy's looking more like me. <laughs> but the experts agreed that shared emotions could gradually sculpture the face of a couple to become more similar. So here's some of the couples that they looked at. They sort of look alike, right? Married over 25 years, aside from the garments. You just look at their faces. Here's a couple. There's this couple on the, on the left. That's what you put up there. You can't wait to hit that 50th wedding anniversary. Look how happy they are. But there's something that happens. And they, and they found out, and here's another set of those couples, and uh, sort of younger than older, uh, there on the, on the, uh, it's the opposite of my, on the, on the left, your left. And they found out this, common life experiences over years and years can alter facial musculature and wrinkle patterns, leading to an increased resemblance. And what they discovered is that couples, like if a wife likes to smile and laugh a lot, there is an empathetic thing that the husband will tend to do that as well. So that the wife who smiles and laughs a lot will have this sort of facial wrinkling musculature uh, thing that happens over, you know, many, many years. And the husband begins to empathize with his facial features as well. Or if you go back to this happy couple here on the left... <laughs> If they don't smile a lot, there's no lot of... The empathy, the empathy is grumpiness, you know. And so they begin to acquire the same sort of muscular features of uh, wrinkles and scowl and things like that. Although they do have little happy bells behind them, so I'm sure they were having lots of fun. It's just hard to see it. It's just hard to see beyond their face. So I show these couples to you with the idea to illustrate the very simple fact that what I believe what Paul wants us to know is that the more I know and relate to Jesus, the more I will begin to look like Him. Right? The more I spend time with Jesus, the Gospels, the Scriptures, prayer, devotion, disciplines of Jesus. The more time I invest there, the more this external visible thing called my body begins to acquire the attitude, the actions, the verbiage, the temperament of Jesus. 
So, how do I look less like Adam? How do I become more like Jesus? I need to know him, O-I-D-A, intellectually. I need to know him, Gnosko, relationally. So that as I spend time that way, I acquire more of his traits so that these things happen. Sin becomes less an influence in my life. As he says here, our body of sin might be done away with. Sin becomes less of an influence. And secondly, Jesus becomes a stronger influence in my life. Who he is and what he says and how he dictates life, he becomes the presence. You can't hardly read the gospel of Christ when he interacts with the Pharisees, when he interacts with sinners, a woman caught in adultery, when you see how he interacts with sinners and saints alike, his disciples, Peter who betrayed him, Mary who loved him, Mary his mother who watched him die on the cross, the more you see how he interacts with so many different kinds of people, both sinners and saints, the more you see how he relates the more you know how he relates, the more you become like him. And then you'll live the righteous life. And that's all he's come to do. That's all he's here to do. That's the sum total. Without that, you might as well just not even be a a believer because that's what he's called us to do. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to Christ Jesus. As Philippians says, Finally, brethren, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence of anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. He goes on to say, what you've seen in me, do what I do. That's what Paul says. And what Paul do? Paul does what Jesus did. So my mind dwells on these things. Colossians says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is. Let that be the driving influence in your heart and your mind. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. When I set my mind on things above, set my mind on the life of Christ, when I set my mind there, those things begin to become pervasive in my life. If I'm spending more time watching the housewives of Orange County, I'm going to become more like them. And who wants to be like them? They need Jesus. And all the other, I could just start listing them all. Unless it's American Chopper, that's okay. But <laughs> there's a lot of things that you need to understand. Whatever, whatever I eat and digest in my mind becomes part of me. Because my mind does not have a switch where like the computer... I can just erase it. You know, once those neurons are fired up by something I see, it's there. It's somewhere in there. It's, it's floating around in this little noggin of mine, and I can't delete it. There's always a Rembrandt. Rembrandt. A remnant. Rembrandt. What's wrong with me? I don't even have cold medicine in my brain. There's always a remnant of that floating around. So no Christ to become more like Christ. Secondly, to live like Jesus and less like Adam, I need to present myself to Christ in obedience and service. This is where 11 through 21 becomes so critical. As a follow-up, not as a uh, premise to these things. 
presenting myself to Jesus must come out of knowing Jesus. Because if I'm just presenting myself to Jesus in obedience, then it's just all legalism, and I don't want that. He says here in verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, as that you may obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteous, unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, but your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace, but never be? Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves of obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or in obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching in which, to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. Let me try to sum that up. That's just, uh, boy, it's... There's so much to sort of dwell and sort of read in our time here. We don't have enough time to kind of dice every little phrase. But let me give to you what I believe the Apostle Paul, if I could put it in a summary fashion, would have us to take away so that we can become righteous in Jesus and less in Adam. And that is this. Remove myself from the influence and activity of sin. It's so simple. The more I thought about this, the more I read through this, and this word present. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. That word present or presenting is two words. Put them on the screen just to sort of help drive this home. Para, which means to be near or beside, and histomy, which means to stand. What Paul is saying to you and me, you want to live the righteous life? Stop standing around those things and people that influence us into unrighteous and ungodly living. Don't stand near. Don't be in the proximity to be influenced in a way that is destructive to the mind or the heart of those things that are unchristlike and are unrighteous. doesn't mean you don't go, you get out of the world and you become a monastery or a monk. No. But it's understanding the proximity of what I'm doing and who I'm doing it with and how much influence they're having on me. And candidly, I should be having influence on them. The life of Christ should be so vivid and real in me. This is the key. I need to know Christ before I can present myself in this way. But the more I know Christ, the more my presentation of righteousness overruns their presentation of unrighteousness. So if you're working in a business where there's all kinds of stuff going on and verbiage and jokes and and things that uh, are unrighteous, you let your righteousness shine brighter than that. But don't let them influence me. And I remember a way long time ago, way back in the dark ages of uh, our college years, uh, Joy very kindly would always say, you know, when you hang out with so-and-so and so-and-so, Phil, you don't know who Phil is, but since this goes out on the internet, I don't want Phil to find out. Phil will know who Phil is. But when you hang out with Phil, you seem a lot grosser. See, that was way a long time ago. I'm not that way anymore. Um, and what happens is that when you are with certain 
kinds of people and certain kinds of situations, your heart and your mind becomes vulnerable to the influence of those things that are not of the character of Christ. And Paul is simply saying, don't present your members to the body of, as a body of sin to instruments of unrighteousness. And it's a very flowery and big way of saying, don't hang out where's the unrighteousness. Don't let it influence you. Don't stand near it. Separate yourself from it. And uh, you'll do a lot better. And then secondly, I commit myself to a righteous life in my heart and my behavior. So he says down in verse 19, and again, we're glossing over a lot there. He says, I'm speaking in human terms, and again, human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. In other words, this is hard to understand. But just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, see, before Christ, I present my, my body as a slave, it is a slave to sin and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So I commit myself to a righteous life in my heart and my behavior. Present, stand near, present yourself in slavery to righteousness. And I say that means a lot of things. It means come to church on Sunday morning, for one thing. But beyond that, it becomes a place of righteousness where I, where I place myself, I stand near, para histemi. I stand near where God is righteous and where His righteousness is having an effect. I go and I serve Him. I find a place to serve. Kim and, and Victor over here in the apartment complex. Is it because the apartment complex is all righteous people? 100% so they want to live there? No. They want to be the righteousness to the people there so that they can influence them. I place myself in a place of service where God's righteousness can flow through me so that I can present myself. I'm a slave of that righteousness. I want to present myself in a community of people. So we have life groups. Life groups are a community of believers that I pray are righteous people, that I cannot do this alone, so that when I go into the unrighteous places in which I will have to someday and sometime be, I have that community of righteousness that overshadows that community of unrighteousness. So I present... I stand near those who are righteous so my righteousness can penetrate their unrighteousness. I need a community of believers. I need a place of service and obedience. I need moments where the righteousness of God is all I'm thinking about. And that means, that means stop everything, sit still, absorb, read, study, pray scriptures so that I have no influence in my mind right now in that moment but the righteousness of God's word. And I pray it through and receive it and say, God, help me. Help me. My mind's going to drift. My flesh, as he talks about the flesh here, we had enough time, my flesh is weak. My flesh will be drawn to sin. But Lord, let Jesus be in my mind so that others can see Jesus in my body. So that my righteousness shines brighter than their unrighteousness. And when I live that way, when I live knowing Christ and then presenting myself with Christ, I move from Adam's column and more often into Christ's column. And I need to understand there are consequences. I understand my consequences. 
I need to choose. I finish up with this. Therefore, what benefit? The word benefit is actually karpos, which means fruit. What fruit? What fruit can I pick from this life? Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from these things which you are not ashamed? What good does it do to live as a slave of sin? There's no good that comes out of that. Sin has a consequential pattern to it. Sin leads to other lawless and, and misbehaviors and painful consequences. Sinful decisions lead... It's like, remember golf? I said about golf. The, the more you hit it off the course, the harder is the next shot and harder is the next shot. So what benefit is there from the things you used to do in sin? But the outcome of those things is death. But now you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, the outcome of eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to go out and help people to understand there's a price to be paid for whatever you choose to do. There's a price to be paid for not receiving Christ. There's a price to be paid for receiving Christ. So which consequence do you want? One leading to death and lawlessness or one leading to righteousness and eternal life with God in heaven? And he presents that as an option for us. So I pray that as I would answer that letter that I just started out with, how do I become more in Christ and less in Adam? I need to know Christ in my mind and relationally relate to Him. Oida and Gnosko, I need to know Him. So the more I know Him, the more I present myself to Him, and less I present myself into unrighteousness, and the more I present parahistami, more I present myself in a righteous community that gives me the strength, both in community and individually, as I spend time stopping from all of the unrighteousness and just let time spend in the righteousness of God's Word. Let that become the bathing, baptizing influence because I've got this new identity, so I need to spend time in that identity, less time here, more time here, in the new identity that Jesus offers us. Let me pray for us, that God would give us that blessing. We're going to receive the offering after this prayer. and Just pray that God would bless us to live the righteous life He's called us to give. Father God, I thank You that You have given to us the hope of life in Jesus. Lord, we live in a world there is influence of unrighteousness surrounding us. But we're not called to be monks. But we are called to be wise and Lord, I pray that we would know you more every day. And the more we know you, the more we look like you. And the more we look like you, the more we present ourselves in righteousness. We don't present ourselves in unrighteous ways and unrighteous things and situations. But we move from there to present ourselves in your righteousness. So that our righteousness... Our slavery to righteousness is more powerful than others' slavery to sin. So we can draw them to realize there is a price to be paid. The wages of sin is death, but your gift of eternal life, what a blessing to live in that. May we invite others into that as well. And we pray it and receive our offerings and thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.